welcome to the Pat Life Podcast. As always, I'm Patrick, and today I have with us a very special guest, uh, a woman who's been working her butt off trying to get answers that, uh, as we talk today, realize that maybe there aren't as many as we would like in regards to certain topics, and we're going to dive into all that great stuff here today. We have with us Christine Massey. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. So I just want to give uh, just a quick overview from my end, and then I will let you take the floor. So um, like many people, we have a lot of questions to this 2020 uh, COVID era, and uh, there's a lot of things that people can make sense of. One of those things is, what is the thing that we're all getting locked up for? What is all? What is the thing that we are getting put uh, life on hold for a lot of people? Now, I know it's two years past, but that being said, a lot of people's livelihoods have been diminished and or affected in serious ways because of this. Now, Christine and many others have gone and put it upon themselves to go, okay, well, we're going to go look for some answers. And we're not going to try to debate on whether or not something's real, uh, whether it be a virus or whether it be COVID itself. We're just going to try to find answers by asking them, what are you all basing it off of? And you went and did some research and you started doing uh, using what the what the law and the uh, and everything else that people can basically use at their own at their own free will to try to get answers. And uh, we're going to leave it at that. So maybe you want to take the floor from here. Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, basically, that's what I did. I I learned about this issue that we'll be talking about early, say, around probably around April or May of 2020. Mm-hmm. I became aware of this issue that the alleged virus hadn't actually been isolated. And I'll I'll go into what all that yeah, yeah. what that means. So I, I initially um, got my first initial understanding of this primarily from Dr. Andrew Kaufman. He had done some presentations and he he explained things very clearly so that lay people could um, understand and and just to be clear, too, my background is not in virology or microbiology or anything along those lines. I was um, a safe drinking water advocate for about 10 years before COVID got started. So I was opposing the addition of fluoride to drinking water, public drinking water. And we could talk about that later if you like. Um, and I had worked as a biostatistician. So I had worked with cancer researchers, but I was the number cruncher. Mm-hmm. So I was you know, comfortable with being, you know, looking at scientific studies, but um, virology was, it was the first time I had delved into virology. But Dr. Dukoffman explained things so clearly that anybody could understand it. And that the issues are actually quite simple, at least when you have someone explain it to you, it's actually quite simple. It's not um, rocket science. So um, what he was explaining was that if there really was a virus, the, to, in order to show that an alleged virus actually exists, the first step would be to find it, <laughs> which, you know, it's, it's so obvious. It's, um, it's almost ridiculous to have to say it. But you would need to look in samples that are taken from patients. So, for example, their lung fluid. And look for a new thing. If you think there's a tiny new particle that's causing disease, you should look for it and you should be able to find it. And according to their virology theory, um, once an alleged virus gets into a host, it starts replicating inside the cells 
and it eventually bursts open the cell and goes to other cells and it infects a, a, an area of the body and then it can be spread to other hosts. So there should be millions and millions or billions of copies of this alleged virus in patient samples. But um, what Dr. Andrew Kaufman was explaining was they've never actually, they hadn't found it um, in any patient samples. They hadn't actually done that. And that's not, that's not actually what's been going on in virology. So it turns out that uh, and a lot of people think we're wrong when they when they hear us say on social media, they hear us saying the virus has never been isolated. And they think we're wrong because there's all sorts of publications that say that it was isolated. And you have the CDC with a web page saying that it was isolated. There's news reports from different institutions, universities, what have you, saying that they isolated the virus. And so people often think that we're just wrong. But as Dr. Coughlin was explaining in virology, when they use the word isolation, it means some, it means something completely different. And what it actually means, it, it, they've done something that doesn't even demonstrate that there is a virus. So um, if, if virologists were actually scientists and thinking logically and rationally like most people, they would look in the patient samples and they would look for this tiny little thing and in the size range that viruses are said to be. And they would need to separate everything else out so that they can focus in on that one particular thing. So that's what we mean when we say isolation, and that's what most people mean by that word. And sometimes we say purification instead. So you would need to separate everything else out because you have to do a few things. First, you want to fully identify that particle so that you can distinguish it from other tiny particles because th there's different particles that might look similar, say if you're looking in a, an image from an electron microscope, but that doesn't tell you the genome. It doesn't tell you, like it doesn't give you a protein analysis. There's different kinds of analyses that can be done. So you want to make sure you fully describe and characterize that thing to distinguish it from other tiny things. And, and that way too, then when you're checking in different patients, you wanna make sure it's the same thing that you're studying. So, um, so you have to purify it first. And then once you've identified this thing, you need to do controlled experiments because we're told what a virus is said to be is um, a replication competent obligate intracellular parasite that spreads disease. So replication competent, maybe it replicates itself. It makes copies of itself. And intracellular parasite, meaning um, what it sounds like, it, in, it goes inside the cells and it basically acts as a type of parasite that draws on the resources of the cells to make copies of itself. And it's causing disease and it can be transmitted to other hosts. So you, you don't just, even if you did find a new particle and you fully identify it, that doesn't tell you what it does and it doesn't tell you where it came from doesn't tell you if it came from outside the body and infected the body or if it's actually something that originated from within the body. Um, it doesn't tell you if it has anything at all to do with the disease that the person might have. So you have to do controlled experiments. And this is another reason why the particle would have to be purified because if you just did an experiment with say some lung fluid and you maybe expose some animals 
and you have to, so you have two groups of animals and you have all the conditions the same in both groups, but you just expose one group of animals to the lung fluid. Even if that group got sick and the other group didn't, all you would know that was that there's something about that lung fluid. You couldn't say it's a specific thing like a virus. So you have to do a controlled experiment with that specific thing so that everything else is controlled. And then if you do get a difference in the groups, you can attribute it scientifically and logically to the specific thing. So you have to, you have to do the purification step. And there's famous virologists like um, Mont Montagne on record saying, you know, this, this needs to be done. So what Dr. Andrew Kaufman was explaining, though, was this actually wasn't done. If you look at the isolation, isolation studies, they never isolated anything. So what they actually do in virology, they take that sample from the patient. They don't bother looking in it, which, you know, a lot. this part alone, I think, would be shocking to most people when they find out. The virologists don't even look in the patient sample and try to identify a tiny thing that they think is a virus. They don't try to purify it out. They literally don't even try. And they say that if they did, there wouldn't be enough virus to find, which doesn't fit with their whole story that it's replicating and it's making so many copies of itself and spreading. And this is the cause of the disease. How can you how can you tell us we're such a threat to each other and it's potentially, even if you're asymptomatic, you're potentially breathing it out or when you're talking to people and it's getting on surfaces and it's on the masks and make sure you put your mask in the garbage and we're all supposed to be so careful and then and then turn around and say, oh, but, but we couldn't actually find it. That doesn't make any sense at all. Right. So that part alone is shocking. So what they do instead, instead of looking in the patient sample, they say, well, we, we need to give it a chance to grow. And so they're going to culture it. So they haven't identified any specific thing in the patient sample. But what they do instead is they put the patient sample with a cell line. So their idea is that they're going to culture it, meaning give it a chance to grow in a cell line which is strange because their whole theory was, again, it, that it already grew, it already replicated in, in the human, which is supposed to be the host. But instead, they put it in a cell line, and um, what they typically use is uh, viral cells. And viral cells means um, epithelial cells, <clears throat> excuse me, from an African green monkey. So they're monkey kidney cells. Which And monkeys are not the alleged host of this alleged virus. So, again, it doesn't make sense. Why would it grow better <laughs> in some monkey kidney cells? But this is what they do. And then a cell line needs nutrition. So what they give the monkey cells to keep them um, healthy is fetal bovine serum. So bovine meaning it's from a cow. So they've taken material from the human, which would have obviously human cells, the genetic material from the human, bacteria, fungi, things that they breathed in. There could be all, all kinds of stuff. It's already a complex mixture. They put it with monkey kidney cells, which is another complex mixture that could also have bacteria, fungi, who knows what. 
And then they add material from a cow, which again could have all sorts of different things in it. So they've gone from a complex mixture to an even more complex mixture. And this is somehow supposed to help them find, find the virus. So what they do is um, they, they also add toxic chemicals. And so they add antibiotics and antifungals and they add ones that are specifically toxic to kidneys. So they're adding drugs that are toxic to kidneys into monkey kidney cells. And they add more than what the kidney cells are known to be able to tolerate. And then the other thing that they do is they lower the level of the fetal bovine serum. And again, that was the nutrition for the cells. There's a certain amount of fetal bovine serum that would be added when they just want to maintain the cell line and keep it healthy. So they lower it. So now the cells are not getting their full nutrition and they're being poisoned with these drugs. So then they watch this dish that they have, which is completely unnatural. It doesn't reflect what's going on in the human body. We're not putting fetal bovine serum. And well, you might be actually if you're getting vaccines because it can be in the vaccines, but, mm -hmm. um, and we're not anyway. So it's a, a totally unnatural mixture and they watch it for several days and they're looking for the cells to start breaking down and they call it cytopathic effects. And if, and when this happens, that is what they call virus isolation. So, and it usually they don't use any controls in their experiment. And sometimes they use what they call mock infected cells. They never um, explain exactly what they did with those cells. So it's always quite sketchy, but we know it can never be a fully controlled experiment because again, you, you would have had to purify the particle. That's the only way you can have all the conditions the same except exposure to the alleged virus. So, um, so based on this procedure, they conclude that yes, the virus exists. It was in the human. Now it's in their dish with a monkey cow human mixture. It replicated. It caused the cytopathic effects and they have isolated it. Right. And the average man or woman can see this is not logical. They haven't demonstrated that there's a virus in this mixture. They sh certainly haven't isolated anything. Right. And then they take some of the fluid from that mixture that they created, and this is what gets called virus isolate. And most people, when they hear virus isolate and they see, oh, you can purchase SARS-CoV-2, that's the name of the alleged COVID-19 virus, you can purchase it from different companies for doing research. So they, again, they think we're crazy because you can, you can buy a virus isolate, but Again, you have to read the details and that's where everything comes apart. You find out, no, it's just some of the fluid from that monkey human cow mixture. And they assume that there's, they say there's a virus in there, but they've done nothing to demonstrate that there's actually a virus. Right. So that's what's, that's what's actually been going on in virology. <laughs> and yeah, sorry, I know that was a very long winded no. intro, but I kind of have to explain all that because that's the only way people can understand the significance of the documents that I've been collecting. So um, when I learned about this from Dr. Andrew Kaufman, I said, okay, um, 
I wanted to verify what he was saying. I mean, he seemed to know what he was talking about. He came across like a reliable man, but you know, I wanted to do my due diligence and make sure. So I was looking at some of these virus isolation publications and sure enough, it was exactly what he was right. saying. What well, can I just preface something real quick? Yeah, you were, you were sure. saying that he himself, as well as you were taking mainstream articles and publications you know, because I know a lot of people that, uh, as you say, call us woo-woos and crazies or whatever, um, don't realize that uh, people like Dr. Andrew Kaufman, people like Dr. Cowan, people like, you know, even though he is a virologist, Dr. Stefan Lanka, they're looking at the publications that are open to the public and or in Dr. Lanka's position, doing the research themselves because they are, in fact, a virologist. I just want to make sure that we clarified everybody that this is the publications that are out there. It's just knowing how to read them, how to see the, in certain situations, the ridiculousness of what we call, like you said, a virus isolate or a purification process. So I just want to clarify. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. We're not, we're not, there's no speculation going on here. We're relying on their own documents, their own studies. So, of course, there were studies that came out of Wuhan, China. And then the next country that alleged to have isolated the virus was in, that was in Australia. I'm not sure of the order after that, but I mean, supposedly it's been isolated in Italy, India, Canada, the US, uh, Korea, many countries, New Zealand. All with the same procedure. And yeah, so we're just looking at, All. yeah, basically, there's always, there can be little variations on the finer details, but it's that same basic recipe. None. And so, yeah, that's what we're, we're going on. We're going by what they are telling us, what they're, what they are telling the world in their publications. This is what we did. And this is what they're calling virus isolation. So I, I wanted to, I wanted to be very, um, careful and make sure nothing had been overlooked because you know maybe there's a publication that dr kellen missed, uh, kaufman missed and um and maybe i haven't seen it yet so maybe there's something out there we don't know about i just wanted to be sure so i started submitting freedom of information requests and i live in canada so i was sending to health canada and the public health agency of canada those were the ones that I started with, the National Research Council of Canada. And um, I can explain quickly what freedom of information Please, yes. is for some people might not know. So freedom of information is, um, it's a general term that I use that a lot of people use for, um, there's legislation in a lot of different countries that is meant to facilitate people getting access to records that are not already publicly available. So if you believe or you suspect that an institution could be a government a ministry and a department and agency, it could be a publicly funded um, university or hospital, um, something that's publicly funded associated with the government, mm -hmm you can do a freedom of information request. In some countries, it might be called access to information or right to know. There's variations on what it's called. But it's basically legislation that will lay out um, a protocol that needs to be followed to ensure that people get answers. 
Because if you just send off an, a casual email or a letter and you ask, sometimes you just get ignored. Mm -hmm. But if you specifically do it as a freedom of information request, now they're obligated under their own rules to respond within a certain number of days and facilitate what you're looking for. So I started filing these requests, like I said, with Health Canada, Public Health Agency of Canada, National Research Council of Canada. And I gradually started getting the responses back. And sure enough, they were... So, so what I asked them for was um, the type of study that should have been done if a virus actually existed and if virology was actually a science. So I was asking them for any records by anyone, any records that they have in their custody or control, because you can't ask them to go searching for records on the internet for you. It's you're, you're asking for records that they have. So as for any record that you have of anyone in the world, having done that initial step of finding the alleged virus in a patient sample and purifying it out. And I focus just on that step because if they didn't do that initial step, or if they don't have a record of anyone doing that initial step, then they can't prove that there's even a virus. Right. Because that's the foundational step. So I always just focus on that to keep it simple. And sure enough, there every institution I asked was admitting they don't have any records of anyone on the, anyone on earth having done this. Right. And and this is a situation too, just I mean, I it goes without saying, but I just to clarify, this are government agencies in Canada, obviously here, where they're basing all of their, you know, tyrannical decisions based off of the the virus and based off of all these things. And these government agencies that you're going to and asking for this information to know, hey, are you basing it off of this? Or if there is that thing, bring it over. And they're saying, well, we don't have what you're looking for which is purification. Exactly. And so yeah. most people logically would break down just for those who are even questioning this. If I'm making my decisions based off of something, that should be in the government's hands. Yeah, so it's most people would understand it as going, if, if uh, a government body is saying, hey, we're doing this because of this, that supposed piece of paper or documents would be in the hands for the Freedoms of Information Act. They cannot keep that from the Freedom of Information Act. Correct? Like that would be something that should be a handover saying, hey, this is available to the public because we're talking about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, and I'll just clarify one point too, because some people might know a bit about Freedom of Information and they might be thinking to themselves, well, Freedom of Information, uh, mm -hmm. the legislation at least all the in all the countries that I'm aware of, it only applies to records that are not already publicly available. So, you know, I, I tried to consider every possible scenario where maybe um, they do have a record, but it's already publicly available, in which case they don't have to give it to me. So what I said in all of my requests was, <clears throat> excuse me, if that's the case, if you have, <clears throat> excuse me, if you have a record like this and it's already publicly available, please um, cite it for me. So give me the title, the author, you know, where was it published? And if it's online, give me the URL. So I was covering all the bases because again, they're supposed to be helping you find what you're looking for. 
So if it's already out there, they should be willing to give me this information. And again, they, they have nothing, nothing whatsoever. And in the Canadian legislation, if they don't have a record, they're required to say so explicitly. They can't kind of fudge it and say, oh, well, you know, studies like that would be publicly available. They're not allowed to. They have to just say, we don't have any. So I have responses now from 49 Canadian institutions, and they all had to admit they don't have any record of anyone on earth. So this means that none of these institutions are able to prove scientifically that this alleged virus actually exists. They don't have that ability based on what they, the information that they have on hand. And you said, oh, sorry, so, go ahead. Oh, uh, so my, like I was, when I started out with this, I wanted to verify, make sure we hadn't missed anything. But I was also thinking if Dr. Kaufman is correct and nobody has actually done this, then if we get these responses saying, no, they don't have any records, it's also evidence. So it becomes a teaching tool for the public to say, look, you don't have to go searching over the internet for yourself. You, you can see Health Canada or the Public Health Agency of Canada or the CDC, or we have hundreds of institutions now on record. They're telling you they don't have it. They don't have any record of that ever being done. And we also have the CDC, Public Health Agency of Canada and numerous other institutions on record saying that what we're asking for is never done in virology. Mm -hmm. They have said things like what you're asking for is outside the scope of what is possible in virology. Um, they make it clear that it, it just isn't done. But there's a few key, um, I, I don't want to call them tricks, but pieces of supposed evidence that confuse people um, and one I already talked about was those virus isolation papers that make it sound like a virus was actually identified and isolated. So the others are all these genomes. Again, people often think that we're crazy because they know that there are genomes uploaded. They're available on government um, database. And there's actually uh, over 11 million different mm -hmm. SARS-CoV-2 genomes at this point, which most people don't realize. But um, so... I'll explain what's actually going on there because again, it comes down to, you have to read the methods to find out what actually happened. So in these um, so-called virus isolation studies, they're usually also reporting that they sequenced the alleged virus. And so what they actually did, well, what they would need to do if they were actually, again, if they were scientists, you would wanna have a purified sample of the particle that you think is a virus and you would want to extract the genetic material just from that particular thing. Because obviously, if you want to sequence that thing, you don't want genetic material coming from the human, the monkey, the cow, bacteria, fungi, right? You want to know it, it came from that particle. But again, because they didn't purify, they can't do that. And they don't do that. So what they actually do is they'll take, they'll extract all the genetic material either from that sample that they took from the human, which would have human, human genetic material and material from the bacteria, fungi, whatever else, they'll take it from there or they extract all of the genetic or the RNA from that monkey-cow-human mixture that they created, which is even more ridiculous 
more diverse. So they extract all the genetic material or all the RNA because they say that SARS-CoV-2 is an RNA virus. They take all the RNA from that. So you have millions or billions of sequences in there. And you, if you're looking, if you think there's a new thing, you would have no way of knowing which sequences come from that particle that you're interested in and from other sources. Now, what they can do is compare these sequences they find to their database where they've cataloged other things. But if a sequence, even if it shows up in there, that's not a guarantee that it doesn't also show up in a new thing. But also, it's not as though every single human, monkey, cow, bacteria, fungi, and all the other things have all been sequenced already and have their genomes uploaded. But they act as though that were the case, and they have this ability to just know which of the sequences are from the alleged virus, which they haven't even shown exists, and which ones are not. So they do this weeding out process, and they also make decisions based on the length of the sequence. And then, so all these, oh, and another part is, um, so to actually identify the sequences that are present in this wildly complex mixture, they use PCR. And um, I'll talk about that in more depth in a moment, but they're using PCR in a way that they run many, many cycles and it's not reliable. So you, they run a PCR test and they think they detected something, but because of the way they actually ran the test, it's, you don't even really know for sure if the sequence was there. Dr. Stefan Lanka calls it dirty PCR. And apparently that's like an industry phrase that they use when they're doing something when they know it's not reliable. So they're kind of, but not really detecting millions and millions of sequences and then deciding which ones to keep and uploading them into, a, it goes into a computer. And then they have their computer fit these pieces together in different ways. And they eventually settle on a long sequence that they just declare is the genome. They literally just make something up. They've never shown that this genome corresponds to anything in the physical realm, whether you think there might be a man-made virus or, or a natural virus. No one has shown that this sequence actually exists physically, that there's an actual physical counterpart. It's just strictly a computer code. They call it in silico. In silico just means like on a computer, on a silicon computer chip. And that's what gets uploaded to these government databases. And again, we're not just speculating here. We're not making this up. It's in their publications. You will read when you get to this section on the sequencing or the metagenomics, um, they will say that they extracted all the RNA either from the patient sample or from the cell culture. So again, this, you know, it gives the illusion that they're doing science and something actually exists. How can it, how could it have been sequenced if it doesn't even exist? But again, you have to go to the methods and read the details. Thanks for checking out our free preview of the podcast. If you want to listen to the rest of this episode and many others like it, become a member at thepatlife.org.